Okay, so there are three topics that I'm... My title has three parts, and I'm going to start with design. And um, Sam is partly responsible for um, uh, having me talk about this, but I think I mentioned the idea to him, and he said yes. Uh, <laughs> Phil, Hill, Phil Hill also, a number of years ago, said, wouldn't you nice if you talked about this? But, um, and then um, I should say that I'm a mathematician rather than a physicist, so I'm not really expert on this. Um, and that I owe a certain amount to talks by um, Robert Mann, who came um, uh, to UBC um, last term and talked about this topic. So let me start off with the first word part of this topic, which is design. And this is from a book by William Paley, in, written in 1802, um, and he's arguing um, for the existence of God. And this is a very well-known passage. Let me just read it out. I'm going to read out a slightly longer version than you've got on the screen. In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. Nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of the answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place, I should hardly think of the answer I had before given, that for anything I knew, the watch might have always been there. There must have existed at some time, at some place or other, an artificer or artificers who formed the watch for the purposes for which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. Every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design which existed in the watch exists in the world's works of nature with the difference on the side of nature of being greater or more, and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. So, uh, first of all, we can admire the rolling prose of, of Paley. Um, nowadays, you know, we are sparse in our prose and don't use five words when two would do, but um, uh, people in the um, 19th century had no such um, restrictions. So this book, William Paley, Natural theology or evidences of the existence and attributes of the deity collected from the appearances of nature, written in 1802. And so basically, Paley is saying, if we see animals, frog, for example, we look at all the way the frog is in, uh, adapted to its environment, we are led to believe that there must have been somebody who designed the frog. And that's why it's called the argument of design. And the argument, if you take a step back from the argument, the design argument is inductive. It proceeds from the existence of apparently designed objects, animals or frogs, to the existence of a designer. As with other inductive arguments, it can never give complete certainty, but um, nevertheless, it, it can be a strong argument. Now, surprisingly, um, for people like William, uh, like uh, Richard Dawkins, the argument in the form that I've given it as given by Paley, is actually relatively modern in the history of Christianity, I think really dating from the 17th century. Older arguments for the existence of God, such as the five arguments of Aquinas, do not include the argument of design. So we might ask, um, why is the argument from design relatively recent? So, um, let me give you a parable. Uh, you may recognize this. Um, this is Highclere Castle, which um, is the fictional place where the um, 
I've now my brain has gone blank. Downton Abbey is is done. So the parable is: imagine that um, you were bought, you were born, born in Downton Abbey as a member of the um, uh, family. So as a young child, you probably imagine that everybody is like you. Everybody lives in a house with sixty bedrooms and twenty cooks and um, uh, forty um, maidservants. Then, of course, as you grow older, you would realise that your position is exceptional. So my parable is perhaps the universe is a bit like that. And to go back to frogs, in classical and medieval times, um, the belief was that small animals like frogs just arise spontaneously from from mud, from putrefaction of mud. (laughs) And it was only when people began to examine nature of scientists in the 17th, natural philosophers they would have been called then, in the 17th to 18th century, that they found that spontaneous generation doesn't occur, and they began to understand how complicated frogs were and how, you know, um, there is actually something to be explained here. So as long as people imagined frogs or other animals to be unremarkable, they would not see any, any evidence for design. And it was only when they discovered all the ways that a frog is adapted to its environment and, it, and is special that they began to see that there was something which had to be explained. And so we see have this book, Paley, written in 1802, um, after a period of um, work by um, natural philosophers, as they were called then, on, on biology and so forth, pointing out the, all the ways in which um, animals are designed and adapted to their environments. And Paley could go on for you know, hundreds of pages um, on, on, on this kind of thing. His books were widely read in the um, uh, first part of the 19th century. In fact, evidences was pres- pres- prescribed that is compulsory reading for undergraduates at Cambridge um, in the 1830s when Charles Darwin was an undergraduate there. And Charles Darwin admired Paley's book. There was an awful lot of natural, uh, you know, of, of biology in it. And, um, uh, and initially, I think he was uh, convinced by Paley's arguments. But of course, we know that um, uh, Darwin really gave the death knell to Paley's arguments in his 1859 book, Origin of Species. He ended the classical argument of design, as given by Paley and others, by providing a scientific explanation of how apparent design in animals could arise by natural selection. Now, when you see what, um, you know, initially, first of all, Paley's argument and then Darwin's rebuffal. The first instinct of Christians or Christian um, to reply to that might be a sort of defensive move. Okay, they would say. Um, You've explained how um, once life starts, evolution can create frogs and design things, but you haven't yet explained how life starts. So um, that's a natural defensive move, um, but it's in fact a disaster. And it's it's a disaster um, because of what Christians, apologists, have called the God of the Gaps argument. Um, there are, and here is a quote from Bonhoeffer, which um, uh, sort of emphasises the bad tactics in such arguments. So he says, if in fact the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed back, pushed further and further back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not, not in what we don't know. 
So in particular, in biology, although there is no firm explanation of, the, um, of, of how life came into being, um, scientists are finding some sort of vaguely plausible pathways. And I think to say, you know, science can never explain how life arose from inorganic materials um, would definitely be a bad move for, for Christian ap ap apologists. So one has to be careful about the argument for design because of exactly the warning that Bonhoeffer gives here. And many other Christians have also um, given the same um, argument. So in fact, the term God of the Gaps, atheists like Dawkins may say that, that you know, this is a, an, an atheist argument. In fact, it's Christians who, who invented the term God of the Gaps, not, not atheists, but to criticize a certain kind of Christian ap apologetic and um, uh, argument. So that is what I had to say about design. Now let's go on to fine-tuning. So now, um, looking around the room, uh, most of you are of a sort of generation similar to mine, so I'm sure you will all know what this object is. Um, if I was talking to a younger audience, you might not know. Um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, so we have a radio and we have a little dial on it. And um, as you all know from the days when one used to tune radios, and in fact some of us still do, um, uh, you know, you, you, you want to get the station, CBC2 or something, you twiddle the dial, you hear and then when you get it right, almost right, you get something with a, a lot of hissing, you get, twiddle it a bit more. And when you've tuned it correctly, um, uh, you get the station. So this is the concept of tuning, that if some dial is slightly off, you get nothing. If some dial is exactly right, you get what you want. <coughs> and there's going to be a certain amount of science in this talk, so I'm going to have to introduce scientific notation for large numbers. Um, probably familiar to many of you, but here if not. So 10 to the, with a little 6 above it is 1 followed by 6 zeros. Um, million. 10 to the 32 is one followed by 32 zeros, and you can see that um, there's a, there are a lot of good reasons for writing it like that rather than like that, because if you meet numbers like that, they take up a lot of the page, and then you have to count carefully the number of zeros. Um, and then for small numbers, 10 to the minus 32 is just 1 over 10 to the 32. So we're going to be using scientific notation like that a lot in um, the talk to come, because there are going to be a lot of very big or very small numbers. Now I want to talk about the current state of physics. And there are two theories which explain nearly all physics, in particular all the physics that we can do experiments with. The first of these theories is general relativity, produced by Einstein in 1915. And that extends Newton's um, mechanics to very heavy or very fast objects. And you've probably all heard of relativity and, and Einstein. What you may not have heard of is the other theory, which is called now the standard model. You may feel this is slightly unimaginative um, terminology by physicists, but that's what they call it. And it was produced by many people over a period of about 50 years, from 1960 to 2010. And it extends quantum mechanics to give an accurate account of very small objects. And let me tell you that there are four fundamental forces um, that we meet in nature. Two of them will be familiar to you, and two of them will not be familiar to you. And the, the two which are not familiar are not familiar to because they only work at the scales of um, uh, atoms and so. 
So the first force is gravity, which we all know. And here I have the relative strengths of these forces. So gravity is incredibly weak compared with the next force, which is electromagnetism. Then there is a force slightly unimaginatively called the weak force, and there's another force which physicists call the strong force. And the strong force, fortunately, is, weak, is stronger than the um, weak force. So these... <laughs> and in fact, it's the strongest of all the forces. And you might also notice that though the strong force is stronger than electromagnetism, compared with, with some of these other numbers, it's only about 100 times stronger than electromagnetism. And that actually, that ratio is... The, the relative strength of the strong force in electromagnetism is important. So, continuing with um, my description of, of physics, here is a picture of the atom as it was introduced to me at high school, and this is called the Rutherford atom. So, here's the carbon atom. It consists of um, six protons and six neutrons in a nucleus, and then electrons, which are sort of drawn as orbiting it, though they don't, it's not quite like a solar system because the, the, the electron orbits are actually sort of smeared out, but let's not go into that aspect of things. <laughs> so we still believe in carbon atoms being like that, but the standard model has now given us a more detailed description of what's going on with the protons and neutrons. So um, here is a picture, I, many of these slides I stole from the internet, as you probably will um, guess. And here is a picture of the standard model. Um, and I'll go explain a little bit about it. But before I do that, let me just say that when you see this as a description of um, all the matter that we have, um, there's an apocryphal quote from King Alfonso of Castile from the 13th century. Um, the, the system of epicycles, which was rather complicated, was being explained to him. And he said, If the Lord Almighty had consulted me before embarking on creation, thus... I should have recommended something simpler. Something simpler. Um, there's no evidence he actually said it, but it's a wonderful quote. Um, and uh, you may feel when you see the standard model here um, that similarly, couldn't, couldn't things have been a bit simpler? <laughs> so let me just, the, the colours give you, these are the various fundamental particles. So we have here, um, I think this pronounced quarks rather than quarks. There are six kinds of quark. Then we have familiar electrons here, and then some neutrinos here, which we're not going to be discussing in this talk. And the fundamental particles come in three columns, each column heavier than the previous column. And in fact, as far as the, pretty much all the matter that we're concerned with in the universe, everything is in the first column, and the second two columns are irrelevant. So why are the second two columns there? Nobody knows. And then we have, some, we have some things called gauge bosons, which I'm not going to say anything about. And then there's something called the Higgs boson. And if you were following at all um, uh, science news, you will have seen that the Higgs boson is the final part of the standard model. It was discovered a few years ago in the particle accelerators um, at CERN, and there was a lot of excitement about it and bad journalism calling it the God particle. Um, the Higgs boson has no more to, go, to do with God than the electron has, or, and no less to do with God than the electron. So this is the standard model. And these quarks make up protons and neutrons. So here is the picture of um, uh, a proton and a neutron. 
Each of these is made up of three quarks, and they're made up of the simplest, um, lightest quarks, the up and the down quarks. Again, you may wonder about the terminology of physicists. Up and down has no, no actual meaning. They're just sort of metaphorical um, terms. So a proton is made up of two up quarks and one down quark, and a neutron is made up of two down quarks and one up quark. And the up quarks have charge um, plus two-thirds, and the down quark has, char has charge minus one-third. And quarks always come around in threes for reasons which I won't go into. <laughs> not sure, not sure. Now, the standard model, um, I showed you all those particles in standard model. Um, there are about 19 numbers which arise in the standard model. Um, physicists would call these free parameters. That is, they're numbers which could, in theory, take um, any value. And these numbers include the relative strengths of the forces and the masses of the particles. If you go back to the um, picture here in um, type, which is almost certainly too small for you to see, there are the various masses of these um, particles written um, um, uh, here. And those numbers, they be measured, but there's no explanation of why those masses are what they are, rather than something else. And particularly important for, these, for this talk are the strength of the strong force compared with electromagnetism, which you saw, it's about 100, it's, it's 137 times stronger than electromagnetism, and the masses of the up and the down quarks. And let me just say, if we go back to the Rutherford atom for a moment, when the atom was, um, uh, when I learned about the atom, um, a natural question is, well, here we have six protons stuck together in a nucleus, how come they stay together? And the first thought might be, well, gravity is holding them together. But gravity is 10 to the 39 times weaker than electromagnetism. There's no way that the gravitational attraction between the protons and the neutrons could hold um, the, the, these things in the nucleus together. And the answer it is, is it, it's a strong force which is holding together the protons and the neutrons in the, um, in, in the nucleus. So scientists, physicists, ask the question, why are these numbers what they are? And we'll be thinking about that in a theological level later, but at the scientific level, we have three answers. The first is, that's just, what, that's just how these numbers are, and that's all there is to say. The second possibility is, um, you know, the, the current theories of physics are not final, there is some deeper theory which explains why all the masses of the quarks are whatever they are and everything else. So there's a possibility of um, possibility two, and then the multiverse is a third possible explanation which I'll be coming to um, towards the end of the talk. And so now we haven't said anything yet about fine-tuning. So I'm going to give you two stories of fine-tuning, and the first one is what's called the Hoyle resonance. So this is um, Sir Fred Hoyle. Uh, as a young man, he looks like he's at an Oxbridge College, but um, uh, it's not clear. And there are 92 elements, chemical elements, which are found in nature. 
and the two lightest, hydrogen and helium, were made a few minutes after the Big Bang. Um, but all the rest of the elements were formed by nuclear fusion inside large stars. So in the early, early universe, that is, um, when the universe was a few hundred million years old, stars began to form. Some of those early stars were very large. And inside the stars, nuclear fusion occurred, which means um, elements banging together and create heavier elements. These early stars were large and had short lifetimes of only a few million years. They exploded in supernova, scattering the dust and things out, which then condensed um, uh, into second and third generation stars. So um, all the matter in this room was once in a star um, and create, was, was created in a star. So that's how the elements were um, formed. <coughs> And in the 1950s, Fred Hoyle was working on nuclear fusion in stars, trying to work out how carbon and oxygen would form. So physicists knew enough how to do calculation. At this point, um, the hydrogen bomb already existed, which um, is where hydrogen atoms fuse together to create helium and produce a huge amount of energy. So quite a lot was known about fusion, but fusion of more complicated elements was less well understood. So two helium atoms make an element called beryllium uh, with eight um, uh, <coughs> protons and neutrons combined, four, four neutrons and four protons, and that's denoted beryllium-8. Then add another helium to beryllium and you get carbon, and add an, another helium still to carbon and you get oxygen. So these processes were, were going on in the stars, and Hoyle was trying to work out the... How, how things would work. Um, so but what he found is that unless the carbon and oxygen nucleuses don't worry exactly what a resonance is, it's a bit like the dinging of a bell, but, but, but um, I'm not, I can't give you any more detail on that. But unless these atoms have the right resonances, these reactions won't work. So Hoyle was led to predict that carbon must have a resonance level close to 7.65 MeV, never mind what MeVs are. And this was then, I mean, this, this is actually what a scientist um, dream about. He made a prediction on theoretical grounds, persuaded some experimentalists to measure the resonance, and they found the resonance as he predicted, more or less. So if this carbon resonance were not there, or were different, a bit different, then little carbon would form. Um, so there wouldn't be any life or humans because you know, we're made out of carbon. And one also needs an oxygen resonance to be right to, or you get too much or too little carbon or oxygen. So Hoyle was um, an atheist or agnostic, but here he is in 1982. I've always been intrigued by the remarkable relation of the 7.65 MeV energy level in carbon to the 7.12 MeV one in oxygen. If you wanted to produce carbon and oxygen in roughly equal quantities, these are the levels you would have to fix, and your fixing would have to be just where those two levels actually are. Another put-up job, I'm inclined to think so. Now, what did he mean by that? Um, it's not really clear, but as I said, he was an agnostic, but he's saying these resonance levels are a put-up job. Can we have a trans British translation of put-up job? Uh, so if um, a shop is burgled, and uh, you 
a perhaps inside job would be another way of putting it. But it's slightly different from inside job, but I think it, that's the sort of, um, you know, something's not what it seems to be. When you say someone robbed the place and we don't know how it happened, but that it was the inside workers that did it and they're covering themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's a, there's, there are signs of um, uh, a forced, exible, forcible entry from outside, but they look a little suspicious when you look at it carefully. Yeah. So I think that's what he meant by, roughly, by put-up job. But, you know, a put-up job has to be done by somebody. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, that's, that's Hoyle in 1982. Now, um, uh, when Hoyle was working, you couldn't, uh, it's rather complicated to calculate these resonant resonance levels from the fundamental constants of the standard model, um, but it has been done. And one finds that if the strong force were about 1% stronger, there'd be lots of carbon and almost no oxygen. And if the strong force were about 1% weaker, there'd be almost no carbon and lots of oxygen. So we saw that ratio of 100, 137 between the strong force and electromagnetism. If that ratio were 1 in 110 or 150, um, we couldn't be here. And here's a second example of fine-tuning, and I have to say these are the two best examples. Um, back to the proton and the neutron. Here is the proton made from two up quarks and one down quark, and the neutron made from two down quarks and one up quark. And the six quarks have masses in terms of the masses of the electron, the up quark is four and a half times the mass of the electron, the down 9.4 times. Then the other quarks have really strange names, um, including strange quark, charm quark, top and bottom quark. Um, and the bottom quark, you see, is incredibly heavy compared with the other ones. Again, these numbers measured experimentally, but no one has any explanation of why these numbers are what they are. Now, if the down quark were three times heavier, then neutrons would decay into protons. Remember that carbon consists of um, six uh, um, protons and six neutrons. If the down quark were three times heavier, all the neutrons inside the carbon atom would decay into protons. The atom would then fly apart, and the only element would be hydrogen. So we'd have a hydrogen-only universe, and that's not a very exciting universe. If the up quark were six times heavier then protons would decay into neutrons. So, in fact, there wouldn't be any atoms at all. Um, if you had a hydrogen atom, the proton would decay into a neutron, and you just have neutrons floating around. And, again, no, no chemistry of any kind, no elements as we understand them, um, no life or people. So, again, you, you see these numbers. If the up quarks and the down quarks didn't have masses roughly what they are, we couldn't be here. So um, there are a certain number of papers in what I'm calling here fantasy physics, which is working out what the world would be like if the constants of nature were different from what they are. Uh, there aren't a huge number of those papers because um, uh, you know, it's not of huge practical use um, to know um, uh, what these things are. But and it's, it's also quite complicated um, uh, to, you make a little change in, in, the, law, in the, the constants and to try and work out everything that would follow from that um, is rather, could be rather hard. Um, 
But what one finds, roughly speaking, is that most choices of constants give rise to various kinds of disaster, at least from the point of view of, of life, such as the neutron-only world, when nothing interesting would ever happen in the neutron-only world. Only very special, and this is where the word fine-tuning comes in, fine-tuned choices of um, the constants lead to an interesting world with chemistry and the possibility of life. So what we see from all this is that the argument from design comes back now, um, not now in terms of things like frogs in the, you know, which we find in, in the universe, but in terms of the fundamental laws of nature. So the argument of design is coming back, but in a much stronger form um, than um, it was before. So now let's look at explanations from a theological level. Um, look at the three scientific um, uh, explanations and what one would be inclined to say about it um, from a philosophical or theological point of view. So the, that's just how it is. So there's just, in this picture, there's just one universe and the constants could have been anything, but of all the possible choices of constants, it just so happened that the choice of constants produced in the one and only universe the possibility of life. Well, uh, for a theist, that's um, more or less perhaps what one might expect. But if you're an atheist, um, it raises some, some awkward questions. You know, it's not a proof of the existence of God, it's just an inductive argument, but it could be enough to make an atheist feel a little uncomfortable. The second explanation, an unknown theory explains it. Well, um, of course, one can't say what an unknown theory might, might do, but the general expectation among physicists now is that they're not going to find a theory which will explain all, all these 19 um, parameters in, in the standard model. And even if an unknown theory does explain it, again, this would be the question, why is it then that the only universe just happens to be the one that, we, that things work out so nicely? And then the third explanation, which is um, quite popular among many physicists, is the multiverse. And so let me tell you a bit about what the multiverse is. So let me say that the, before I go on to the multiverse, I explain why people talk about the multiverse. The, the word universe is, ambiguous, is, is very ambiguous. It's used in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes it's used to mean everything it exists. So God is something which exists, so God is part of the universe. Or it may mean every, you know, the, the space-time continuum that we're in um, as, as, far as, as far as it can be. But what cosmologists and astronomers mean by the universe is actually rather bad terminology. It's what we might better call the observable universe, which means everything that we can see. And because light travels um, not at an infinite speed, but at 300,000 kilometers a second, we can only see, and the universe is only 14 billion years old, we can only see so far. And what we can see is what physicists and astronomers call the universe. So looking for something to describe something beyond the universe, they have came up, come across this term, the multiverse. So up to this point in this talk, I've told you about um, what general relativity and standard model are saying. And these are well accepted and extremely well um, experimentally verified um, theories. There are, because the two theories aren't compatible and don't describe everything, there is a search for a theory which can unite those, those two. And there are various 
sort of conjectured bits of physics which are beyond the standard model, and you may meet terms like supersymmetry, string theory, and the multiverse. And all this physics is at this point not experimentally confirmed and, and is speculative, a point which is not always brought out in newspaper articles where um, you know, there's a tendency by journalists to latch on to the new thing and make it more solid than it is. <coughs> so several different lines of evidence indicate that the observable universe was compressed into an extremely small space at the beginning of time, at the beginning of the universe. This is called the Big Bang, and it occurred about 13.8 billion years ago. Now, um, although it's not essential, I think I should try and correct here a common misapprehension, which is that you know, there before 13.8 billion years ago, there was empty space, and then there was a sort of explosion um, of everything. So if you look at the Big Bang Theory on TV, that's more or less the picture that the TV, um, the beginning of the um, right <coughs> TV show is showing. So this is not what physicists think happened. Um, what do they think happened? Something harder to explain. Um, and so I should say something about what I'm calling active space. This is my terminology. So our everyday way of thinking about space, which perhaps follows Newton, is that space is just sort of an empty thing which is passive. Um, space without anything in it is, is, is just nothing. But in both the physics theories, relativity and the standard model, space with no matter in it is still active in various ways. So empty space still contains... Um, it's the sort of behaviour of, of, of space in, which produces gravitation in general relativity. And in quantum mechanics and the standard model, even a, a bit of empty space, what are called virtual particles, are continually jumping into and jumping out of existence at a very, very rapid rate. So stuff is going on even in space um, which is completely empty. And here is a sort of picture. I mean, to, all one can do, do um, uh, at the non-mathematical level um, is to sort of use, even and perhaps even for mathematicians too, to, to, to make some metaphors. So here is a sort of picture of um, one of the ways that um, physicists may think about space. This is an Escher drawing, I think. We think of space as being these, these, these objects connected by rods. And if the rods get longer, the bits of space get further apart. And if the rods get shorter, the bits of space um, com compress together. And here is a slide which may be not very visible saying how the universe expands. I stole it from the web, and it's more about the expansion of galaxies in the later universe, but it also applies to, kind of apply to the early universe. And this is the picture of um, baking bread with raisins in it. So you have a loaf with raisins. As the loaf bakes, it gets bigger, the raisins get further apart. Um, so the picture is the raisins are the sort of bits of matter in the universe. And what is happening, first of all, at the expansion of galaxies is space is being created between the galaxies, so the galaxies are moving further apart. And similarly, if we go back to the Big Bang, all the universe that we have, the space is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So everything that we have, all, all the universe is compressed into a, a, a tiny region, but there's nothing outside it. Um, uh, 
So what happens at the Big Bang if, if you were trying to do a TV um, thing, which they do it honestly, what you'd show would be, I suppose, a white, completely white screen representing an extraordinarily high temperature and then gradually cooling as, as um, the, the universe aged. And so in the beginning of the Big Bang, everything was compressed together at incredibly high temperature and pressure. And then as space expanded, the density of matter got less, the temperature got less, and we finally get to the world as we know it now. So, <clears throat> there's something called cosmic inflation. And this is the hypothesis that the universe underwent a period of extraordinarily rapid expansion very early. So, when the universe was about 10 to the minus 32 seconds old, which is not very old at all. Um, there was a period of about one, one ten thousandth of its lifetime, 10 to the minus 36 seconds, in which the universe grew by an astonishingly big factor of 10 to the 26. <coughs> and this concept was suggested in about 79 or 80 to explain the uniformity of the cosmic microwave background. <coughs> I should say that the, one of the strongest evidences for the Big Bang is what's called the cosmic microwave background. This is the sort of universe was very hot. As it expanded, um, it got cooler. And the radiation left from that, from that cooling is the cosmic microwave background. It gives us the earliest view that we have of the universe as, uni of the universe as it was at about 400,000 years. And it's astonishingly uniform. And physicists were puzzled by why it's so uniform. And one of the um, explanations, um, the best one really, is this concept of cosmic inflation. So there was a period very, very early in the un universe when it grew by an extraordinary amount. So here is a sort of, uh, um, so again, I stole it from the web. Um, maybe we don't, so something happens at the Big Bang, and then there's an astonishingly period, rapid um, uh, period of, uh, of expansion there, and then the rest of the universe, um, uh, the history of the remaining 13.7 or 8 billion years um, follows. <coughs> so here is the hypothesis for um, uh, that physicists have. Space carries with it properties which determine the constants in the standard model. So back to this picture the Escher cubical grid. You might imagine that there's one kind of space which has got a cubical grid and another which has got a sort of you know, diagonal rods in it as two. So you've got, one, you've got more than one possible kind of space. And before inflation, the universe was at very high temperature and all the little different possible kinds of space were all mixed up. And in the inflationary era, which was this period of extraordinarily rapid expansion, the little bit of space that we're now in had its properties kind of frozen during the very rapid expansion. And that little bit of space that we're in, um, with the properties fixed, expanded to a size far larger than the observable universe that we're in. So here is, again, a, a sort of picture of what um, it, we, we can imagine happening. So imagine that before inflation occurs, um, all our matter is in this little region here. And these directions of these arrows are supposed to represent different kinds of space. And in some sense, different kinds of space like to be ne next to each other. But in the very, very high temperature early universe, 
there's enough sort of thermal energy around that you, everything is randomized. Then in the inflation era, this little bit of space expands and we find ourselves in a region where all the bits of space around us here are like us. If we went an incredibly long distance over in that direction, we'd find other bits of space looking like that, um, and, and so on. So that's what physicists are proposing, and as I said, or I didn't say rather, but the slide said, this is called by people the level two multiverse. So here's the multiverse um, hypothesis. The whole universe, or multiverse, contains many regions, some very large like our own region, each with its own value of the fundamental constants. And those values of the fundamental constants are chosen in some ways randomly by, by the bits, different kinds of space. Most parts of the multiverse will be unsuitable for life. We'll be in the neutron-only universe or the proton universe or a universe where carbon and atom, oxygen don't form or whatever. And, but of course, we have to be living in a part of the universe which um, is suitable for life because otherwise we wouldn't be here. So this is the explanation of the, um, uh, the, the multiverse explanation of fine-tuning. And um, no one really knows, but according to some theories, there are about 10 to the 500 different types of space. And that would probably be enough to explain the co coincidences that we find in, in fine-tuning. <clears throat> so this is the multiverse explanation for fine-tuning. <clears throat> so... In favour of the, as I, but as I said, nothing has been proved. This is all speculation. So, in favour of the multiverse, one could say that it arises naturally from a number of current theories in physics, and it gives an explanation of fine-tuning via what pe people would call anthropic or selection effects. In other words, we when we have to be in an area where um, you know oxygen and um, car and carbon exists, so it's not surprising that the constants of nature are such as to allow the formation of oxygen and carbon. Um, against the multiverse um, hypothesis is, first of all, it relies on speculative physics um, of various kinds. Um, there's no established mechanism for the inflation. People have hypothesized the inflation. There's some experimental evidence, observational evidence that it exists, but there's no explanation of why inflation um, starts, so or actually also getting it to stop is a problem. <clears throat> and there's no experimental evidence um, in favour of the, of the multiverse or observational evidence in favour of it. So what I've told you about is the level two multiverse. Physicists actually talk about a number of different level multiverses, and let me just quickly say a little bit about the other levels. <clears throat> so the level one multiverse is just parts of the universe with the same physical constants as us, but too far away to be seen. <clears throat> Level three multiverse is to do with what's called the mini-world theory of quantum mechanics, which I'm not competent to talk about. <clears throat> and there are even more extravagant multiverses, which I've put in fainter and fainter type to indicate um, that my, <clears throat> my view of their uh, merits. <clears throat> the level four multiverse, Mac Tegmark, <coughs> Every mathematical object also has real existence. And if you think about what that means, it's really um, not even clear. It, it makes any kind of sense, that, that. And the level five multiverse is that we live in a computer simulation. So these increasingly daft ideas um, <coughs> are, 
I'm, I'm uh, not going to talk about. So, um, <laughs> Elon Musk apparently um, uh, um, believes that, that we're living in a computer simulation. And um, um, one of the unfortunate things about the modern world is that if you're a billionaire, people take you really seriously. Um, and think that um, more or less every word that you drop is um, you know, a pearl of wisdom. Um, uh, so, uh, anyway. <laughs> So here are three Christian physicists. Um, Don Page, I think, doesn't like the level two multiverse, but I think he's a many worlds person. George Ellis, I heard him at a conference say the multiverse is not science and never will be, so he's very anti-multiverse. Robert Mann, who talked at UBC um, uh, earlier this, um, this year, is somewhat against the multiverse, um, uh, but, but in a slightly more... Um, uh, more uh, ambiguous position there. So Christian physicists have all kinds of different views on, 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 on this topic. And what about the um, future? So the first thing is there's not likely to be any confirmation from astronomy. The other bits of the universe, places where the constants are, are, are different, are just too far away to be, to be seen and you know, will, will always, always be so. The only way that the situation is likely to change is by progress in theoretical models such as string theory could either add support for the theory or take it away. So multiverse doesn't completely rely on string theory, but it gets strength from string theory. And two theories in physics, supersymmetry and string theory, which are supposed to sort of go beyond the current standard model, are both in a bit of difficulty because... <coughs> People aren't finding the kind of observational or um, experimental confirmation of them that, um, that they would like to be finding. That is for supersymmetry, and string theory relies on supersymmetry. So I'm, here we are at the end of my talk, and here's my, my quick summary of what I've told you. So fine-tuning arguments bring back the possibility of the argument from design, um, but now not expressed in terms of biological design of, of animals, but expressed in terms of the fundamental laws of nature. The multiverse provides an alternative scientific explanation, um, but one which is far from being confirmed scientifically at this point. And sort of sitting on the fence, um, in, we, we may be rather enthusiastic about the um, fine-tuning argument for the existence of God, but we have to keep in mind the pitfalls of God of the gaps type arguments. So that's it. <laughs>